All right. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. I heard a couple of chuckles at the video. I don't know if they were sympathy chuckles or not, but <laughs> um, welcome. It is good to be here with you all this morning. Happy September. All right. Um, happy fall, that means, or at least fall soon. Uh, soon everything will be pumpkin laced somehow. Okay. So your coffee, your cereal, everything will be pumpkin something. Uh, and in about three more weeks in retail stores, Christmas decorations will go up. All right. And so it is fall season. Though, don't fret, in Texas, it'll still feel like it's mid-July for the next three months, okay? Um, but I love fall. Uh, fall is kind of the start of a lot of new things for us. Uh, it's new schools for a lot of people, or at least the re-entering back into school for kids, for college students, for uh, even some of us in grad school. There are new jobs going on a lot of times. A lot of people start kind of in September. Football season is back. All right, and so that means for the Cowboy fans, new disappointments, all right? Um, and then for us, uh, a new sermon series, all right? And so we're starting a sermon series called Hashtag Struggles, Hashtag Struggles, all right? And um, I think it'll be really good, really encouraging for us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Genesis chapter one, that's where we're gonna be starting today, okay? So you don't have to flip far, uh, one of the first book, first page, Genesis chapter one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, please feel free to grab that and to take and keep that as our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have the word. And so please take and keep that um, Bible. Also, if you want to follow along on your smartphone, you can actually do that as well. If you have the YouVersion app, uh, click on the tab section and click on live. Uh, and you can type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. There are uh, polls, notes, stuff like that. If you don't have the app, but you want to follow along still, you could take this link, put it right into your browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way. Um, before I came up, my throat was bothering me a little bit, and so I went to get some water, and I was sitting in the back, and uh, Ken happened to pull up the U version and showed that the poll question says, who has more friends, Bob or Tori? <laughs> That's not what the poll question was supposed to be. Supposed to be on Facebook, okay? And so if you do take the poll, don't think I was like trying to diss one of us, all right? Um, yeah, so I just wanted to get that out the way before you thought something weird was going on. So um, anyway, so struggles. Uh, what does it look like to live Christ-centered in a selfie-centered world, okay? So this will actually not necessarily be a social media-driven sermon series, though without doubt social media does highlight some of the problems that we kind of have living in this individualistic society, right? It kind of highlights our desire to focus on self or to build the self up or to promote the self. As a matter of fact, that's really what social media is about, is self-promotion in a lot of ways, right? And so you promote that you ate really good food or, or that you took a really cool vacation. And really, that's what the video was highlighting, right? Is that you try to promote yourself to be good, to be uh, even maybe better, would we say, than what the world around you is actually uh, about. And so just to keep in theme with the series, okay, I'm just curious, out of curiosity, how many of you do not have some sort of social media account? So you don't have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. How many of you do not? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. Ah, six. Dang. I guessed four. That's why I was eyeing. Okay, but uh, so there's four, six people in a room this size. Almost everybody is kind of engulfed in social media, right? And so for you six, you're either... Uh, behind, or maybe really you're actually probably ahead of the rest of us, okay? Um, and so here's a couple of stats on social media. 
Uh, 24% of people said they have missed out on enjoying a special moment because they were using social media. Okay, so like they missed something cool happening around them or like they were with their significant other, but they weren't really with their significant other. They were on Facebook, right? Um, the average American spends 28 minutes a day on Facebook on their computer, okay? So that means that mobile devices are not counted in this number, okay? So the average American, 30 minutes essentially on their computer, so we can just be pretty sure that it's double that once you add in the mobile device, right? 44% of people spend more time socializing online than in person. This was taken in 2012. So it's gotta be more now because that was before Snapchat and, 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 and Vine and Instagram and these different platforms came out, right? 44% of people. One in five divorces are blamed on Facebook. I don't even know what that means, okay? I don't know, I don't know what that means, but that's what the new stat is, okay? Um, there are 75 million more people playing Farmville than there are actual farmers, all right? <laughs> And, like, Farmville was kind of old, right? Like, that was a couple of years ago, and there are still that many more, okay? 52% um, of people are more likely to experience what they call the contagion effect, which means that if you see something, uh, uh, another person's personality or, or their struggles or their joy, then it's contagious. It affects you, essentially, right? So you see somebody on Facebook like, I hate everything about politics right now, and then you're more likely going to have a negative feel toward politics, 52% of us or half of us. Or they're like, my whole life and everything on this earth is depressing. And you'll be like, oh, I'm kind of depressed too, right? It kind of has a negative or positive effect on us in that way. 85% uh, of women are annoyed at one of their friends on Facebook. As a man, I'm just going to leave that one alone, all right? I've learned. I've been married long enough now, all right? And then 37% of people ages 18 to 32 check Facebook when they first wake up, even before going to the bathroom, now, either A, you don't have to go to the bathroom the way I have to go to the bathroom when we wake up, okay? Or, or what happens is that you want to see what's going on. Like, maybe somebody posted something really cool at 3.32 a.m., right? And you want to see, man, what did I miss? What did I miss, okay? Now, why? Why are all those stats there? Why is it that we are driven towards social media? It's because we want to be connected, Right? Like, matter of fact, isn't that what social media is? Isn't that some of the taglines even in a lot of the social media platforms is the ability to be connected. We want to be connected to each other. We want to be connected to what's going on. We want to be connected to the world. Now, this is actually a good thing. The connectivity that we desire in our hearts is a good natural desire. But, but it can also create a sense of false intimacy, which I know a lot of us are experiencing, okay? So once again, this is not a sermon series specifically on social media only, okay? But it's an easy tool that we can use and we can look at to see that we desire something kind of internally that we don't always get and we search for it in many different ways, right? We, we have this desire within us. And so today, the desire that we'll be talking about is relationships, Okay, we'll be talking about relationships, true, deep, flourishing, intimate, intricate relationships. All of us desire that in one way or another, okay? And so relationships are vital for our very existence even. And so we see this happening all the time that, that uh, uh, the void of relationships really creates a depressing existence for a lot of people, right? Like we see it even portrayed in movies, okay? How many of you all have seen Castaway? 
right? If you don't have a relationship, you end up screaming at a volleyball, right? You go kind of insane a little bit. And that's actually uh, psychologically true, that without relationships, you do begin to try to fill that void in somewhere, whether that's an animal, which we know a lot of people uh, do have that desire, or if it's a volleyball, right? Like, like we try to fill that void in one way or another. Relationships are vital to our health. They're actually vital to our very existence. In our DNA, when the Lord created us, he created us to be a relational people. If we don't have them, we'll end up going crazy. So get this. A study from the University of Utah gathered information from 308,000 people. Now, that's a dang good sample size, right? 308,000 people, and they found that people with good relationships are 50% less likely to die early than those with bad relationships. In other words, if you have a good relationship, you have a 50% chance of living longer than people around you, okay? Or same study, better perspective, showed that having no relationships or only bad relationships was equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day from 22 to 89. <laughs> that is how, like, that is what importance of relationship they found out, okay? They also said that poor social construct, okay, so being in poor social environments was considered to be twice as harmful as obesity. Now, if you know studies on obesity, you know that's one of the leading causes in most of our illnesses, particularly as we grow older, the heart diseases and and different things going on with your body. And they say that poor relationships is actually twice as harmful as obesity. The same study showed that Americans today feel three times more lonely than just 20 years ago. Okay, just 20 years ago. We feel three times more lonely, yet somehow we have hundreds of friends, right? And so what's going on? The research isn't the least bit shocking to me because God created us to be a relational people. And in a lot of ways, I think that we see the the losing or the unbinding of relationships happening in our culture today. All right, so Genesis chapter one, um, we're gonna pick it up right there in verse one. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, let's stop. So the Hebrew word here for God is the word Elohim, okay? And it's a plural noun, all right? However, the verb created is the Hebrew word bara, all right? And it's a singular verb. So what this means is that created is only referencing a singular person doing the creating, all right, yet we see a plural term for God here. You tracking with that? I know it's a little bit confusing. But we're saying, hey, there's only one person that was doing a creating, but yet the Hebrew word God is actually better translated gods, okay? And so what's going on here, right? Well, we know as Christians, the scripture makes it very, very plain all throughout is that there's only one God, right? There's, there's not multiple gods. There's not, there's not tons. There's not like a supreme God and other little deities. There is one singular God. Yet, here we see this plural term. What's going on? Well, literally, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, four words into the text, we actually see something that Scripture begins to unravel throughout the rest of its context. What we see is that God is not just a singular person, but in reality, there is one God, but he exists in three persons. We call that the Trinity. Okay, and so literally from the very first, if you knew Hebrew, which sometimes English does cheat us a little bit, but it's trying to highlight for us that, hey, look, there is this God, but, but, but he's not just a singular being. In reality, he's, he's a complex being. There's three persons within them, but this singular being did create the whole world. 
Okay, and so this truth that God is the Trinity or the triune God, we say the Godhead. That means all three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Now, every time we try to talk about the Trinity, like my brain kind of malfunctions, all right? It's like a syntax error because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, right? Like, like it, like it kind of makes sense and, and we can say, yeah, one and three, but, but in reality, it's really, really hard to uh, uh, really unravel. This mystery is so far beyond us. And so every example that we give really falls painfully short of the actuality. An easy definition, though, I think, uh, because it rhymes, okay, is God is one in essence, but three in persons. He's the same in nature, but distinct in his working, okay? Well, it depends on if you're using proper English or non-proper English, okay? If you are speaking from the EBT version, the Ebonics Bible translation, all right, it's person working, all right, you got that, okay? One in essence, three in person, same in nature, distinct in working, Okay, so God is this one in essence being, but he's three different persons. The Trinity is this deep, complex mystery. However, what it does show us right from the get-go is that God is a relational God in his very being. Like in his very character, God is a relational God. He has relationship with himself. Okay, which once again, it sounds kind of weird until you realize there's three persons there, right? Father, Son, and Spirit all enjoy perfect harmony, perfect affection, perfect love. God has an eternal, intricate, intimate relationship with himself. This is why you hear Christians say, God didn't need anybody to satisfy himself. He didn't need to create this world. He didn't need people because God existed within himself, glorifying himself in relationship with himself. And so we actually see this right from Genesis chapter 1. So they give to each other. They serve one another. They're sacrificial for each other. They, they, they exalt one another. They push the glory to one another. The Spirit says, no, look at the Son. Look at the Father. And, and the Son says, look at the Father. Look at the Spirit. And the Father says, look at the Son. Look at the Spirit. And there's this intricate relationship going on that existed in eternity past and will exist into eternity future. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, five words into the text that God is a relational God. So they're creating the whole world, okay? Now let's jump down to verse 26. Then God, same word, said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we even see this unity in creation, right? God saying, let us make man. Let us make them in our likeness. God speaking with himself about the nature of God and about the creation of man, okay? And so what do we see here, though, about us? Okay, so here's God. God's a relational God. And then what do we see about us? We were created in the what? and what of God? What does the text say? We're created in the image and likeness, right, of God. So Micaiah, my daughter, okay, is created in the image and likeness of me. I can't tell for her yet if that's a good thing or a bad thing, okay? But in a lot of ways, Micaiah will end up looking like me a little bit. She's a little bit scary. We'll see how I look as a woman, okay? 
but she'll also carry on some of the same tendencies and characteristics, both positively and negatively, right? And we see that coming out already, and she's not even two yet, but we see it unveiling where she's acting like me in certain ways and, and making facial expressions and, and doing things, and the same is true with Natalie, right? They, she is made in the image and likeness of us. Well, if God has a perfect relationship with himself, if God is a relational God, if God enjoys relationship, and then he makes us in his image and in his likeness, then what do you think one of the biggest things that we were created to enjoy is? Relationship, right? Like it only makes sense. God's a relational God. He created us in his image and likeness. Therefore, we are to be relational people. God wants us to have relationship with each other. Matter of fact, this is expressed even more deeply in the text. We see it. So Genesis 1, God creates everything. And then Genesis 2 kind of zooms into God's creation. It, it backs up a little bit and takes a magnifying glass and says, let's focus on man, actually. Let's, let's look at the chief of God's creation, man. So jump down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Look what it says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, so throughout all the creation story, if you're familiar, God creates it and it is good. Sun, moon, stars, good, right? Uh, 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 rivers and, and, and trees and sand, good. Night, day, seasons, good. Man and woman, very good, actually. The, the chief of his creation. So everything is good. Then all of a sudden we see not good. Right, we see it says it's not good. So this is the first time in the scriptures that we see something is wrong. Like something, something's not right, okay? And what's wrong is that Adam is alone, right? Adam is alone. There's nobody fit for him, a helper that's fit for him, somebody that's like him. Because man was created like his creator to be in a relationship. Okay, so what does God do? Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. So God creates another human, okay? So we are hardwired in our very DNA to desire to need relationships. So God first speaks poetry. If you look at your Bibles, if you have a physical copy of the Bible, you'll see Genesis chapter one, verse 27, it's written in uh, uh, indention, which we know is uh, poetic, right? So God is actually speaking over us. We know that poetry is a language of love, okay? So that has got to say something about us and God. God says, looks at man, and there's this poetry. But then the man, the first time that the man speaks poetry is to his bride, to his wife, we see here in chapter two, verse 23, right? And so the man uses poetry, he sees another human and, and, and not the dogs, not the mountains, not the seas, not the stars. None of those things get a poetic form, but a human gets a poetic form, right? God creates woman and Adam says, dang, right? Hey girl, you trying to holla, right? That's the, that's the EBT version again, okay? Um, so we were created and meant for unity. Then verse 24, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That we would be one with other humans, just as God is one with himself. That's why I went on that exposition about the Trinity. Three, but one, humans, two, yet somehow becoming one in the covenant of God meant for intimate, intricate relationship with each other. And single people, okay, lest you think I'm just talking about married people, that's not true at all, which we'll see in a little bit, okay? Humans were meant to have relationship with each other. Marriage is just a microcosm of the greater picture of humanity, okay? So we were meant to be one. However, we know the story of the Bible doesn't stop at Genesis 2. It moves on to Genesis 3, right? A little context, in case you're not familiar, God comes in and, or I'm sorry, the, the, the serpent comes in and starts trying to trick Eve. And he says, hey, I don't know if God has your best for you, okay? Eve begins to kind of believe this lie, right? And, and she eats of the fruit and then she gives some to Adam who is passive and standing there watching her be deceived and, and he eats and then the fall happens, right? And look at what happens here once they eat the fruit, okay? Uh, and most people would say, by the way, that what happens during the fall is that uh, man's relationship with God is severed. And they would be 100% right in saying that. Man's relationship with God was severed, without doubt, okay? Man was definitely separated from God, but it travels even deeper than that. Throughout Genesis 3, there are five different divisions or separations that happen. Man from God, but man is also separated, another separation from man. Okay, let's read Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for the food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both them were open and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made uh, themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's man from man, right? I'm sorry, man from God. Verse 11, he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Okay, now remember just a second ago, Adam was singing over this woman, right? Bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. And he was writing this poetic poem to her. And then just a few verses later, he's like, I, I told you don't give me that woman, God, right? Like me and my dog Daisy and the dinosaurs, we were cool by ourselves, right? And he immediately begins to shift the blame and he severs the relationship between man and man, right? He severs the relationship of humanity. Immediately there was a fracture in the way that humans deal with each other. And if it's not bad enough, it gets even worse. Keep reading. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Genesis 15, circle that in your Bible and more on that in a second. We'll come back to that. 
But then look at this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. So the woman now desires her husband. She longs for intimacy. She longs for affection. She longs to receive importance from him, even to the extent at being controlling at times. That word right there that they use is actually a better word for uh, control. The word desire, it would mean to control something to do whatever it takes to get what you need from that person. And then what does the man do? The man just rules over her. That word in the Hebrew actually means to overly dominate. Okay, and so he sees her and he's aggressive and he kind of overly dominates. He says, no, 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 you're not as good as I am, right? And he pushes her down. And we've seen that happening ever since Genesis 3 between man and woman, both using each other for nothing more than what they consider to be relational intimacy, And isn't that true even on social media? Like some of that could be good, but a lot of it is just used for sexual exploitation a lot of times to get what you want out of somebody or to to dominate them or to draw a relationship to give yourself significance, right? But it's not just man and woman. We see it with woman and woman, right? They're uh, uh, bitter a lot of times or, or jealous toward one another or just not trusting inherently of other women or man to man a lot of times. We're competitive or, or, or closed off or, or judgmental and we try to be better than the other person always, not giving to them but trying to dominate them as well. And all of a sudden, all of this relational unity that God desired is fractured in Genesis 3. And if that wasn't enough, okay, the story goes on in Genesis chapter 4. So, They get kicked out the garden because God is gracious, didn't want them to live forever in their sin. Then they go and and, and Adam and Eve have kids and they have Cain and Abel. And here's what happens with these two brothers. Verse six, chapter four, verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. By the way, same thing we just read about woman. Your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. It's the exact same two words. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so we see that that's not a good thing there in Genesis 3.16. It's not a good thing here, right? So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first sin that we see happening after the fall was murder, (laughs) okay, was murder. He murdered his own brother as kind of the first thing that scripture highlights. You would think that the first sin would be like slandering or lying or something, right? Like Cain got mad at Abel and said, hey man, come here. I heard there were some really beautiful women about 75 miles east of here to Nod. You should go check some of them out. And then like stole his property or something, right? No, he murdered him, okay? Why does scripture highlight that as the first sin? Because it's trying to highlight for us that relationship is now fractured. Even a brother with his own brother will murder the brother to get what he wants. Or if he's mad, then he'll do whatever it takes. Relationship is severed. And we see that right from the get-go, right? We are jealous of others. We desire to be more than them. We don't consider their rights. We consider our own. It's happened at Genesis 4 and it happens with us today, right? We don't have healthy relationships. Our concern is not for building somebody else up. Our concern is for building ourselves up. And we are a broken people. That's what scripture actually lays out is that we are broken, right? And so then friends, this is a part of the story that we see all throughout scripture, 
right? Uh, because of sin, we become selfie-centered. We become self-focused. We become uh, isolated. We become uh, 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 self-promoters. We don't try to promote God or, or promote others. We try to establish ourselves and, and take rule and reign ourselves and dominate or, or desire, and we don't submit ourselves to Scripture. And this is, leads to what we talked about at the beginning, more loneliness, more isolation, less relationship, which is what we were created for. We were created for a relationship. And no matter how much we try to remedy it or no matter how many social media outlets we create, it actually just gets worse and worse and worse, right? Why? Because we're not looking at it through the right lens, okay? And so now what? We're broken. We've broken relationship with ourselves. We've broken relationship with God. So what do we do? Okay, remember Genesis 3.15. We see we go back to that. Let's go back to that. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy about Christ defeating Satan, okay? But not just Satan, because Satan is actually a representation of all of the brokenness that extends from Genesis 3 all the way to today. That's a representation of all of the evil, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the terrible things of the world, right? We see in Genesis 3.15, and in the middle of this brokenness, in the middle of the fall, as man is tumbling down, God gives this prophecy that Jesus Christ will come and will restore everything. Jesus Christ will come and he will smash the head of the serpent. He will come and he will gain victory back, right? In fact, let's flip over to uh, the New Testament. So Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and we'll pick it up here in verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, single people, and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. We're not just talking about marriage. What are we saying? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he has come and preached peace to you, those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is a very famous passage and it's God restoring a relationship between us and him. It says 1 through 3 all of us are fallen and then verses 4 through 10 it says but God in his grace has given us the gift of salvation that by belief in him by faith in him through his grace we can be saved. We can be brought into a right relationship with God. So sin out into the world, it fractured that. We no longer love God, knew God, or serve God. But through Christ, we can have that again, okay? But then what are these verses that we just read said? That not only is our relationship with God reestablished through the cross, but our relationship with each other can be reestablished through the cross of Christ. Are you tracking with this? This is an unbelievable truth in scripture, okay? That it's not just us and God, but it's us and each other, right? That through Christ, we can be made one again, not just in marriage, husband and wife becoming one, but we as a people can be one with one another, one household of God, one family. Where we were once two people, we can now be brought together as one. Jesus died and he crushed the serpent's head so that we can have true relationship with each other. 
so that we can have true intimacy that it was created to be from Genesis chapter one to the end of Genesis chapter two. We can have that relationship again. And so in the context of Ephesians, the Gentiles who were once far off, who were not a people have been brought near, and the Jews who were once racist and who were once self-centered can now be brought near and they can become one. Right, And so the racial, the, the cultural, the, the socioeconomical, the, the gender, the class, the, the Aggies or the Longhorns, whatever it may be, right, we could be brought one together again, it says, because we have a common bond, and it's Christ and him crucified. We become family again. We become one people. We can have true unity, true relationship, and a depth that we were created to have with each other once again. The Genesis 3.15 promise just isn't between us and God, but it's also between each other, right? And so listen and think about the picture of the gospel here. Like think about what Jesus had to do in order to make that happen. The God of the universe who had perfect relationship with himself through all of eternity past became fractured. The father separated from the son, the the son separated from the father, the the spirit left the son at the end and there was this fracture between the Godhead so that you who are fractured in your relationship may have harmony again, right? Put it like this, the God who had a perfect harmonious relationship yet severed it so that we who have severed relationships can have harmony again. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of how good God is to us, that he didn't leave us isolated, leave us as individuals, but he brought us together as family, He brought us together, not just as friends, but as brothers and sisters. God broke relationship with himself so that we can have restored relationships again. And so if you don't know Jesus, if you're wrestling, if you're trying to figure out, man, who is Christ? What is God doing? And you're wrestling with that. I would encourage you to enter into a relationship with him. I would encourage you to even today by faith say, you know what, Jesus, I, I, I want a relationship with you because it is definitely between you and God and, and, and through Jesus that can be reunited, but it's also between man and man. If we want true flourishing relationships, those are found in Christ. Those are found in light of the gospel, okay? Now, if we have accepted Christ as Savior, if we have come to know Jesus, then what does that mean for us? Okay, because all that's theoretical, that, that sounds good, that's the gospel, but, but how do we now then go apply that? How should we go live? Look at Hebrews chapter three. And we'll pick it up in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there is an ability, according to this verse, to have a a heart that prevents you from maintaining unity. You see it in verse 12? There's an ability to have a heart that that doesn't unite one another, that doesn't bring about familial love, that doesn't bring about either unity between you and God or unity between man and man. Okay, but then verse 13, the author says, but... Okay, so in contrast to what I just said, then there's a way to not fall into this. And what is that way? How is it that we don't fall into isolation between us and God and between us and each other? By meeting together regularly, the text says. By meeting together regularly. So let me put it like this. Let me put it in the reverse context. because I think it's a lot easier for our brains to get. You will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if you neglect to meeting together regularly you will become hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin if you do not meet together regularly. That's what the text says, right? This is why you hear me say all the time, I need you guys, okay? I say that all the time unashamedly, right? I need you guys and you need me and we need each other. That's how God has created us to be in relationship with one another. We need each other as family. Why? To encourage us, to exhort us. Look, I need you to rebuke me when I'm in sin. I need you to challenge me in my relationship with Jesus. I need you to encourage me about how you're seeing God move in your life. We need each other to be building each other up so that we won't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that we can grow in our relationship with the Lord. When I was in college, uh, I used to go back home for the holidays, as most people did, right? And when I was in my community in college, man, I was loving the Lord, right? I was solid. I was growing. Sin was beginning to wane off. Things that kind of held me captive started falling off of me rather quickly, okay? Then I would go home for the holidays, and I would fall right back into the sin, And so I'd be looking at things online I'm not supposed to look at. I would be struggling in my anger, so frustrated so quickly. My my tongue would get violent again. I I would say nasty things to people. I was just crude in my overall thinking, okay? And I used to think that was a sign of my weakness. That when I went back by myself, I kind of fell back into my old ways because I wasn't strong enough to stand alone because I wasn't strong enough. And in reality... That was actually a sign of me growing in Christ. I realized my need for community. And when I was in community, I didn't fall into the deceitfulness of sin. Maturity isn't how strong can you stand when you're alone. Maturity is realizing that through Christ, we have relationship with one another again, and we enter into that relationship covenantally. That's what maturity is saying, I'm not strong. I need you. Right? I mean, that's what the gospel is, right? Saying, I'm not strong, I need you, Jesus. Well, isn't that true with each other too? I'm not strong, I need you. You're not strong, you need each other. We need each other. In Christ, we can not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our very health and our very existence depends on us being united with one another to kill sin, to be steadfast in Christ. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 19 or 17 through 19. So that in Christ you may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, okay, so you being a Christian, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. We literally need each other, this text says, to understand the depths of who God is. And so if you think you can grow in your relationship with the Lord by yourself, according to this text, you can't. You become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews, and we need each other to know the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. We need each other to know the fullness of God, to grow with the Lord. And so, what do we do? Well, start discipling someone, right? Like like maybe that's a way you can grow in relationship. I, I say all the time that that's the way that's most challenging for me is when I'm pouring into somebody else, I get more out of it than I ever do when somebody's pouring into me. Like, I, I deeply appreciate my mentors. They, they love me well. They challenge me. But when I'm pouring out for whatever reason, the Lord blesses that. So, so do that. Or, or get involved in a group, right? We don't just have groups for no reason or because it's a cool thing to do, right? Like, if you're a good church, you have groups. That's not why we have groups, right? We have them so that you can find ways to plug into a sense of community. Be in relationship. It's vital, okay? And a quick word for introverts, by the way. 
okay? It's a really quick word. Um, you're going to need to fight the urge to isolate yourselves. You're going to need to fight that urge, okay? Introvert, introvertism, or however you say that, all right? It's not bad, okay? It's, it's a great thing, okay? But you're going to need to fight the urge to try to be in relationship. Just as extroverts need to fight the urge to always be around people, <laughs> they need to go be silent and be still and know that God is Lord, okay? Uh, that's a different sermon for a different time, though, okay? For today... We need to know that if our temptation is to isolate ourselves, we can't do that. It's vital for our existence to be in relationship with one another. We need each other, right? And so I'm not saying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? But find a way to meet together. Find a way to honor each other. Find a way to build one another up in the Lord. Get involved in a missional community right? Don't just get together, but then go be on mission together. That's awesome. That's going to unite you. That's going to make you feel like you're on a team. That's going to make you feel purpose, right? Or in a community group. Um, find time to meet with others who challenge you, who encourage you, who will extend themselves to you, and who will force you to stretch and grow, right? Enter into healthy relationships. Even secular society is saying that this is vital for our overall health, okay? And so here's how I think about it. Um, Y'all go into it real quick. I was going to draw it, but I won't draw it. My drawing is terrible anyway. You wouldn't be able to see anything, okay? <laughs> Here's how I think of it, all right? If each individual person, that, was, that wasn't that funny. <laughs> they know because they see it all the time, all right? <laughs> um, if, if we enter into a, 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 a relationship with one another, here's how I think of it. We have like, let's say 100 points maximum to give to other people, okay? So our relational point value in and of ourselves is 100. So what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to uh, maintain all 100 points for ourselves because we're afraid. See, if we pour out to other people, we can lose some of those points. That's what it takes, right? Like when I meet with somebody, when I spend my time doing something, when I, I'm giving of myself relationally. And so we lose some of those relational points. So the temptation is to try to keep all 100 to yourself, right? And try to, to keep all of it for yourself, okay? But we forget we've been created by a God who is infinitely relational. See, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, is like not just 100 points, it's like 100 million to the infinity power, right? He has full relational capacity. So our hearts feel a hole when we don't have relationship the way we're supposed to, just like our hearts feel a hole when we don't have the gospel, right? Exact same way. And so what could we choose to do? We could choose to try to isolate or we could choose to pour ourselves out completely, to give all 100 points. And so I give, give five to Joey and, and five to Julie and, and five to Ben and five to Brittany and five to Eric. And I start pouring myself out. I give 20 to my wife and, and 20 to my daughter and, and, and 20 to the elders. And, and you start pouring yourself out and you end up with zero. Now that's scary, right? Because zero is a lot less than 100. Okay, yeah, for sure. We, we, we need 100 million, but, but 100 is better than zero. Okay, but here's what happens in a true community. Joey, in turn, pours back into me. He gives me five. And, and, and Julie gives me five. And, and Ben gives me five. And man, my wife, she actually gives me 30. I only gave her 20. But, but, but she gives me 30. And, and, and that makes me want to pour out even more, right? And then all of a sudden, everybody starts giving me one or two or three. And all of a sudden, because we're in community with one another, I get 100, 200, 300, 700, 1,000, 10,000 points from everybody else. When I put myself in the position to receive from other people, my relational, uh, 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 
volume, like my relational gas tank, okay, or whatever, right? It, it goes up and it gets even more full than I could possibly take in myself. So then I pour out to other people. The 10,000 I just got, I give back. And then they give back even more. And slowly but surely you build one another up in Christ until you begin to look like a microcosm of what it's supposed to look like between us and Jesus. That's what Christian community is. One day we'll be in perfection with one another and we'll no longer have to struggle with sin. And we'll just love each other the way we're supposed to be loved. See, heaven isn't awesome just because Jesus is there, though let's, let's not doubt if it was just Jesus, that would be enough. But our whole body of Christ, all of the saints who has ever lived will be there encouraging one another, one with our Savior. That is what we were created for, is true intimacy, true unity, okay? And so friends, let's be a church that's filled with vital relationships and learn how to pour each other out so that other people can be built up. Let's be opposite of what the world says. Rather than focusing on yourself and trying to promote yourself, pour yourself out for the sake of others. Spend yourself for the sake of others. But then receive openly from them too, that they can pour into you, that they can love you, that they can bless you. Okay, let us be like our savior in the way we spend our time and the way we spend our efforts, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our, 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 our relational capacity, the way that we do everything, right? Let us try to form these in the process. Will it be messy at times? You're dang right it will be because I'm falling. You may give me 20 and I may give you two, right? And it, it, that, it could happen at times. Do you have the capacity to go from 100 to 80? You know what, honestly, maybe sometimes, yeah. But isn't that what Jesus did? And as we keep growing in that, it won't stay there. It'll grow and it will grow and it will grow. Let us be a church that loves each other recklessly, friends. Let us meet together. Don't neglect meeting together. Find time to enter into a relationship. Don't build yourself up. Build others up around you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your great love.